running away. Um, he's not running after you to punish you. He's not running after you to get a pound of flesh or anything like that. He's running after you to pour buckets of grace on you. So stop running. And, and can we take a, a, a moment just to appreciate our worship team? And no worship team is anything without a great sound crew and media team. The, uh, this, uh, this past week, it was the strangest thing I probably ever experienced. I was at work and I had an inspection going on at work and, um, my boss's boss was, uh, tuning into last week's sermon and the, and the, and the service with the NRC inspector right there. I'm definitely getting fired now, but, uh, and he said to me, he said, he said, uh, thank you. He said, uh, you have a professional worship team. I said, yep. Doesn't everybody? And the answer is no. We really appreciate uh, what you guys bring each week. Uh, and Jill, not being here, she's on the road with her family, enjoying some vacation time. And uh, if I didn't know any better, it looked like you guys had some fun today. And, uh, man, I, I, I come up to this stage every week so ready to, to bring it because they brought it. And it makes it a difficult act to follow, but uh, but I'll try anyway. And uh, this week's been a full week. It's been a busy week, but it's been a great week, full of blessings, full of uh, opportunities, full of all kinds of stuff. A lot of a lot of you in my life this week. That's been a good thing. Um, love each and every one of you. If I didn't, I probably wouldn't say that, but uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding you. But uh, we had uh, informational meeting, so I'll get the admin stuff out of the way. If you were not able to be there for the informational meeting on Monday night, but you would like some of the information that came out, uh, see myself, probably myself or Ed, be the best ones to talk to. We can kind of give you uh, the, the ten-minute recap or five-minute recap, and, and kind of give you the orientation there. Um, we talked about the the mortgage in the building, the things that uh, the finances, those sort of kind of nuts and bolts operations of, of the church, uh, just for the sake of being transparent and uh, and open with everybody. Uh, you put your money in those uh, tithe and offering boxes each week, and we want you to know uh, what uh, what God is doing with those finances, and He's doing some amazing things. I can't wait to see the next chapter. Um, you've seen the parking lot already. We've we've celebrated that enough, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you to to to, to react to that, but uh, I'm still tickled about it. Uh, all the work that went into it. Uh, I also had an opportunity this Monday night to give you a little bit more, hang a little bit more flesh on the vision of uh, thinner, better, bigger. Uh, so a number of you have heard me say that a number of times and um, sometimes probably wondering, what does that even mean? It's not a new philosophy. It's not something that's new for me to bring here. Uh, I've, I've uh, utilized that sort of philosophy in other places and, and seen rich reward from it. Uh, so the idea is that we're thinning our focus. Um, and right now, specifically geographically, we're going to try to uh, break things down and look at this immediate area. Uh, so ravaged by things like uh, drug and alcohol abuse uh, and things that we want to see people freed from in this area. And we can't ask God to send us over to Africa if we're not uh, faithful to those right next door to us. And so we want to do that. We want to be faithful to that call. And now I'm about to contradict myself. I have uh, uniquely my uh, uh, a Ugandan doctor friend of mine uh, who we met while we were over in Uganda. Um, he does a lot of uh, medical missions. He goes to the uh, the slums of Uganda and he helps uh, hundreds of people at a time 
get, uh, get access to uh, clean water and medical treatment that will prevent them from dying of treatable causes. Um, and uh, so it's a beautiful thing that they do. And while we are thinning our focus, he's in the States now. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to bring him in and look at the future and say, this is what we want to build toward. We want to build toward uh, seeing these kinds of things happen. Um, one of the things that we recently did uh, is we, uh, we are beginning to support regularly the Pregnancy Resource Center. Um, that's been something that's been on my heart for a long time. Um, and uh, we have uh, our own Patty Vassal uh, volunteers there every Thursday, I believe. And, um, and so it's uh, near and dear to our hearts. And uh, just so you're aware, our church will, going forward, be supporting uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center. Uh, and the amount that we're giving is kind of special because uh, each month we're going to give the amount that they say this, this amount will help one woman in a crisis pregnancy uh, when she walks in. All the things will be covered. So uh, we're going to be doing that every month. We get to be a part of that and just uh, uh, you know pray for those women to come into that center to be helped in, in that way. Um, but uh, Dr. Franklin is his name, and I'll have a video for you next week and, uh, and an announcement slide as well. But he's going to be coming in two weeks' time. Um, so the 10th of November, he'll be here, and uh, we will have an opportunity. It's not a, a huge notice for you, but we will have a, an opportunity to uh, to give to him personally. Um, and any monies that come in for the ministry that he's associated with, that'll be separate. We'll uh, support the ministry too. But um, I just want to let you know that that is coming, even though it's kind of contradictory, uh, antithetical to my, my thinner focus for now. I didn't want to miss that opportunity with him being so close. All right, so we're getting back to our text. Uh, Paul has been adamant in his attempt to get some basic truths into the thicker skulls of the Galatian believers. And the reason is, this is of life and death importance. Not just life and death here and now, but eternal life and death. What could be more important than that? What can we put our hand to that has more lasting significance than that? And Paul has entered Galatia, he, he brought the gospel there first, he established churches, he walks away, and they start looking for other things, the, the new, the flashy, the shiny, the progressive, as we talked about last week. And Paul is saying, what, what, what are you doing? I, I gave you the gospel, I gave you the good news, the best news you could ever hear, and now you're wanting to add to it. And so he's been adamant to get his point across. He's been, at one point, harsh, you foolish Galatians. One translation, you idiot Galatians. How can you possibly move off that X of the gospel? We used that analogy last week of the metaphor of a treasure map. You find the X in the map, why on earth would you move off of it? That's what you've been looking for. And Paul says, I put the X in the map, you found the X, you were standing on the X, and now you're moving off of it. Because you saw something new, you saw something flashy, you saw something shiny, and it distracted you. He's harsh one minute, but parental the next, as we saw him become the the spiritual father to the Galatians, as he pleads with them, listen to me. Don't just hear the harsh words, the cold, dead text uh, on the paper, and walk away mad because I said some harsh things. Hear my voice. Hear the quivering of my voice and the the, the breaking up of my voice as a spiritual father is, is broken over these people walking away from the gospel. The text we'll be in today, we're going to finish chapter 4 and actually move into chapter 5, verse 1. So Acts 4, you've got to be kidding me. I did it again. I'm... <laughs> we might preach Acts next, I don't know. I... I've, got, I've got two years worth of sermons uh, ready to go. So 
And buckle up. Be, care, be careful what you wish for. All right. Let me just figure this out real quick. I did go over this. I mean, I wrote this stuff. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. You can't take yourself too seriously, right? I mean, I, you start to and then you realize God says, hey, like I said last week, you're not that cool. Everyone else knows it. It's time for you to know it too. And I appreciate you guys are faithful in there to let me know I'm not that cool. Well, they're mean, but they're fair. Uh, so Galatians chapter four twenty one through five one in the message entitled "A Tale of Two Sons." Before we jump into it, let's uh, let's open a word of prayer. Lord and Father, thank you for our time this morning. Lord, might we not waste anybody's time here today? Lord, and the only way for that to occur, for that to happen, is for you to infuse what I'm about to say with your Spirit's power. Because without it, it's going to fall empty, it's going to fall void, it's going to fall vapid, and we don't want that. Father, we want uh, your power here today. We want your Spirit's power among us today. And so for each and every person that is gathered here, that, that took their time out of their busy lives to be here this morning, uh, might you bring this message in a real way to their life in just the exact way that they need. And Lord, that's the part that I can't do. And so far from admitting defeat, I'm trusting you to bring us victory. Lord, might some strongholds be shattered today because of you. You're running after us. Might we realize what you want to do for us and stop. And let you catch us. Catch us this morning, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so we are going to find in the text this morning what's called allegory. An allegory is, if you're not sure, the fancy word to say it's a, a hidden meaning. Usually a, uh, a moral hidden meaning. Um, if I were to try to give you an example, I think probably uh, Pilgrim's Progress would be a really good example of a, a story that's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken allegorically. Uh, but what do we do when we think allegory in the Bible? We are in a theologically conservative uh, group, uh, theologically conservative setting. We usually, we, we fear words like allegory. We think, because uh, some people have abused it, right? They've taken uh, the Genesis accounts. That's not, that, that's not historical. That's all allegory. You see, the, the creation days stand for these different things, and, and they get all sorts of sideways. And we've seen early church fathers get messed up on that and do some, do some crazy things with the text. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. Paul is going to make intentional use of allegory as he continues writing to the Galatians. I used to tell people I take the Bible literally. Uh, I've stopped doing that. Um, I no longer do that. I would invite you not to do that either. I don't take the Bible literally. It doesn't mean I don't take the Bible plainly. Where the meaning is plain, it's where it's meant to be taken plainly, I take the scriptures plainly. But there's different types of literature in the Bible, are there not? Wisdom literature and apocalyptic literature and historical narrative. And so we do a disservice to the text. We do an injustice to the text when we, when we impose our desire to make everything literal on a nuanced, idiomatic expression that's meant to be taken allegorically. And so I tell people now, I no longer say that I take the Bible literally. I tell people I take the Bible literaturally. 
You can go ahead and steal it. I stole it from somebody else, and he probably stole it from somebody else. There's no uh, nothing new under the sun, right? There's no original ideas. I don't think I've had ever had an original idea. Um, and when I do, I found out that somebody else had written seven books on it, and I'm like, oh, I was so close. Appreciate that extended laugh. Give me a time to take a drink of water. Which, again, is the most awkward move a speaker can do. It feels like forever from the bottle going up. It's like, are you chugging the whole thing or what? Are you this guy thirsty? Uh, but let's get serious. Um, so literally versus literally. I tell people I take the Bible literally. If it's wisdom literature, I take it the way it's meant to be taken. At least I try to. When I did preach through the book of Acts, I, I, was, I tried to be careful to remind... Uh, the folks I was teaching, each time this is historical narrative, so it is descriptive of the events it covers, not necess- not necessarily prescriptive. It describes what happened. It doesn't necessarily tell us what we should do next, that we should copy it, though there are some things in there. But Paul, he's relentless in driving this idea home, this idea of grace over law, this idea of gospel over works, this idea of Jesus over self-righteousness. Because they had the best thing he could possibly have, and what does progress demand of us? If all we care about is progress, then even if we have the best, the next thing in town looks better than what we have. Because we're so in love with the idea of progress that we move off the X to accept whatever new thing comes around. Don't do that. You will not be popular for preaching old truths. You won't be. You're not going to win popularity contests. I've never won a single one. I've probably driven more people away by my teaching than I've brought in. But I've got to be faithful to this text because one day I'm going to stand before God Almighty. The book says not many should be teachers. I tremble at that passage. Because every, every week I come here to do something daring, something difficult, something I can't do without God's help. And so we need to preach these timeless truths. Because that is what will save people's souls, not your newfangled ideas. Paul's relentless in driving this home. Again, he's going to go back to Abraham. I wondered, as I was reading this, I'm like, is Abraham or his family getting any royalties for all the times that uh, Paul keeps making use of his narrative? He's like, dude, you know, I, I, don't think he, I don't think so. The answer is no, he's not. Uh, Abraham's long been gone since when this was written. Um, but we got a, a big chunk of text to get through, so I'm going to kind of move expeditiously through it. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time camped out at any one phrase or, or theme. Uh, I'm going to be shorter on the text so we can make some topical application. And as you see the communion stuff on the stage, we want to make time for that as well. So I, I'm, I'm attempting to do a lot. Probably won't do any of it well. So that's your warning. I won't do any of it well, but we'll, we'll do the things. And uh, we'll trust God with the result. But... Uh, we want to make sure we leave time for communion. We missed last month, and I don't want—I didn't want to miss again this month. So, let's dive into the text. Verse twenty-one. Tell me, he says, "Do you who want to be under the law are you not aware of what the law says?" So Paul has been quite rhetorical throughout this letter. He's been, uh, I think, at times sarcastic, almost, uh, almost kind of mean. He's—he's he's used every. Every idiomatic expression, every every figure of speech, every way he could try to get their attention. But I don't think he's doing that here. He's actually asking them a question. Do you understand what the law says? Because remember, he's not dealing with people who are steeped in Jewish culture. He's dealing with Gentile converts to Christianity. 
And these Judaizers, these Jewish people are saying, no, you should look more like us. You've got to enter first through Judaism and then come to the cross. That's how we did it. That's how you got to do it. And so he's saying, that, do you, you who want to be under law, you think you want to be under law, do you, are you aware of what the law says, what it requires of you? Are you aware of the burden that that, that represents? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. If you're not familiar with this text, this bit of narrative, this goes back to Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 17, and Genesis chapter 21. So if you're taking notes and want to kind of get the background story, we don't have time to go into it this morning, but Genesis 16, 17, and 21. And in this narrative, God has promised, he established a covenant with Abraham. One that didn't make a lot of sense. He came to an old couple and he said, hey, you're going to have lots of kids. Like, <laughs> whatever. Okay. But God made the promise. And who believes that when God makes a promise, he stands by his promise? And I think God likes making promises that don't make a lot of sense conventionally. You believe that? God doesn't wow us by doing the mundane stuff. He wows us by doing the extraordinary stuff. The things we didn't expect. I, I tell people all the time, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be this way. 36 years old now and I've been a Christian most of my life. I'm still surprised when God answers prayer. That's a shortcoming of mine. I pray, he answers, I'm like, what? Let's do that again. Uh, yeah, let's do that again. And again, and again, and again. Ad nauseum, because you'll never get nauseous of that. Seeing God at work and seeing God answer prayer. I love that this is a praying group of people. Any moment in time, I don't think it's awkward for me to say, hey, let's just stop and pray. In fact, they're probably all waiting. Yes, Pastor Jeff, we're waiting for you to say that. So we can. But we, we should pray expectantly, knowing that God is doing amazing things. But they didn't believe. Abraham and his wife Sarah had a difficult time believing that her old body would be able to bear children. And so they decided to come up with their own plan. So we couch the divine promise against the, the child that was born according to the flesh. And that's going to serve as our topical sort of foray after we get through the text. Isn't it the truth that so many of the difficulties in life we invited upon ourselves by coming up with our own plan? And I'm a planner. Amen. Anyone else a planner in here? I like to be, I like to be ready for stuff. I like, to, I like to lay things out. I got sticky notes for sticky notes at work. Like, hey, don't forget to make yourself a note to not forget to make yourself a note to not forget to do, to do that thing. It's like I'm eight layers deep. And, uh, and God's like, hey, just why don't you just let me, ha- let me, let me just have this. So if, you're, if you can relate to that, you understand that's, that, that's a burden. And, and God's trying to re- remove that from me. But I got some plans. More on that uh, in a bit. Now, these things, he says, are being taken figuratively or, as some translations have it, allegorically. And that uh, draws our minds back to the idea of an- announcing or kind of uh, introducing the idea of allegory in the text at the beginning. In Jewish exegesis, which just means, exegesis is a fancy word to say interpretation of Scripture. Um, digging out of Scripture what is in there. Uh, eisegesis, its opposite, is reading into the text what you wish was there. And so we are, we are to be faithful exegetes pulling out from the text what's in it, not eisegetes putting into the text what we wish was there. You see the difference? 
And in Jewish exegesis, they had this idea there was four layers of understanding, four levels of interpretation. I'll just share with you the most basic and the most extreme. You know, kind of paint the picture here. Because again, Paul's not doing this in a vacuum. He knows exactly, Paul's a genius. Study Paul deeply, and you'll scratch the surface of what he's trying to do. He's an absolute brilliant mind. Uh, but at the first and most basic level is just the, the, the straight interpretation, the regular meaning of the text. And, and that's, that's seen as actually the lowest level. I, I get what you're saying, I know what you mean. But at the, at the highest order, a Jewish exegete would be then able to make allegorical application of what was said. So for any text of scripture, they would make allegorical application of it, and then and only then would they feel like they achieved mastery over that, that text of scripture. And, and so again, Paul is speaking to a very understandable thing in their culture. Uh, those, especially those Judaizers that might be hanging around, might be more steeped in their own culture than the Galatian believers. And so he makes figurative use of these things. And this is not, by the way, this is not Paul saying this didn't happen historically. He knows that it happened historically. He believes it happened historically. We believe it happened historically. The story of Abraham is not just a story, not just an allegory. It actually happened, but Paul is going to make metaphorical use of it. He says these women represent two covenants. A covenant, an agreement, or a promise. The original made at Mount Sinai, out of stone. The second one, written on our hearts. The first one, a heavy list of do's and don'ts. The second, grace. And we're gonna, we got more to say on that, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let me say, don't get ahead of yourself, Pastor Jeff. But I can't hear you, so I might just do it anyway. One covenant is from Mount, from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Hagar was a handmaiden, the servant girl of Sarah. And because Abraham and Sarah didn't truly believe God for this this massive promise he made to them, uh, Sarah said, hey, why don't you just take my handmaiden? Why don't you just go ahead and have relations with her, go ahead and have a baby through her because you're not having one through me. And he's like, any guy, okay. All right. And he does. He doesn't believe, she doesn't believe God for that promise. And so they take it into their own hands. Now, this would have been insulting to any Jewish minds around because he is right now, he is relating Hagar to Jerusalem. The Jews are like, no, wait, 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 wait. That's our place. That's our holy place, Jerusalem. Why would you be comparing the Arab peoples? Why would you be comparing them to Jerusalem? That's our spot. Because essentially, what going back to the slavery, the baggage, the burdensome law, this, this is what it would be. The slavery of Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented all those things they, wouldn't, they weren't ready to move on from. In fact, they, they were so not ready to move on from them, they wanted the Galatian believers who hopped over them to come back to them so they could join the same struggle they were in. So Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia corresponding to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written. And before I move on, the above, that's not positionally, that's not geographically, that's theologically. The Jerusalem that's above, the realm where God has perfect control. The Jerusalem they should have been more concerned about. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. 
Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who never were in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. This is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1. Now this again, Paul's making allegorical use again because this was not originally written about that story. But he's seeing application here for it. And isn't that just what Abba Father does? Isn't that just what God the Father does? He takes a barren woman and, and makes her her quiver full of arrows. That's what he does. He takes the broken and he makes them whole. He takes the dead and he makes them alive. He takes the barren and gives her innumerable descendants. And why would he choose a barren woman? Why wouldn't he go find himself a fertile myrtle? They call him, right? I had to look that up to make sure it wasn't like crass or anything. It's funny that some of the homework assignments I give myself to make sure I'm not... As often as I step myself up here, I, 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 I do a lot of work not to. Um, but God could have chosen a woman who's in the years of childbirth. But what would, what would have happened? When we're good at something, when we're strong in something, what's our, what's our tendency? Pride, to take credit for it. She said, oh, I just took all my prenatal vitamins and I got a really good system. I got a, you know, I just, with the, with the cycle and all that stuff, I, I just, I know what to do. So I got it, I got it kind of down and I got a lot of kids. So, no, God takes a barren woman who has never known childbirth and now she's way past the age of giving birth to children. She says, I'm picking you. Because at the end of the day, when I pick you and I do extraordinary things through you, there's nobody going to get credit for it but me. And that's when you're feeling strong about something, that's why God's not looking for you. God is not looking to use you when you're feeling big and bad. He's going to go find that broken down person at the door. Kind of peeking around the corner because they're not even sure they belong in here. That's who he wants to use. He, he wants to use the people that clean up toilets. That have no pride in self. But pride in what Jesus did for them. That's who he wants to use. Sorry, I got a little preachy there. <laughs> Bring it, he says. Don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. Row and the, the, the worship team got me fired up this morning. So, <laughs> Verse 28, as we continue. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. That divine promise of verse 23. At that time. The son born according to the flesh, persecuted. Or if you go back to Genesis 21, he laughed at. Ishmael, the, the, the son of Hagar, laughed at Isaac. He tormented him. He persecuted him. The son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. The Jewish people, the Judaizers, are laughing at you now. You're the child of promise, yet they seem to have the upper hand. Religiously, they look like everything they're supposed to look like. We just got done talking to Life Group. If you weren't there, you missed something. I invite you to be a part of that at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. A lot of great discussion. But God's not interested in what the outside of you looks like. Thank goodness, huh? <laughs> Some days it's like, that's a good thing. I'm not liking the way this outside looks. But uh, he's concerned about what the inside looks like. He's concerned that you're not just fancying up the outside of your cup, but you're cleaning out the inside. And so he's not, uh, not going to praise the, the, the Jewish people for looking the part. He's going to take pride in the Gentiles who really are. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance 
with the free woman's son. Those who want to remain as children, those who want to remain as slaves. The text a few weeks, a couple weeks ago said, uh, if you're a child, if you stay a child, you never grow up into maturity, you're no better than the slave. It's not going to be an heir either. You're, you're, even though you're meant to be an heir, you're never going to grow up into the thing that you're meant to inherit. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And then Paul makes a summary statement here in chapter 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That sounds, when I read that, I was like, there's got to be something more to that. What's? It seems kind of redundant, kind of unnecessary to say it's for freedom that he set us free. Is it for playing basketball that I play basketball? I mean, it, it, it seems like you're not saying anything additional. But they, 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 their understanding was so simple here that he needed to say, he needed to speak in simple terms. They weren't getting that basic thing. I came to free you from the baggage of legalism. I came to set you free of the heavy weight of carrying all that around with you all day, all week, all month, all year. Yet you keep holding on to it. Those cards we filled out, we put on stage. I said last week you filled them out, my heart was touched. This won't be hard to believe. I wept as I prayed for those things. And then some of you came back next week and you picked that card up and you brought it back home with you to hold on to the baggage once again that Jesus came to free you from. Let it go. Stop running. Let him catch you. He's not looking to punish you. He's looking to dump buckets of grace on you. the kind of stuff he does to call a guy with no seminary education to be your pastor. Nothing about me says that guy should be the pastor of a church. But God's got different plans. I'm so glad he does. Let him set you free. Stand firm then, it says in verse... Uh, verse verse 1, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The Jewish people would have seen this yoke, that that expression, that metaphor would have in their mind said, oh, it's just spiritual direction, we're just getting guidance. But Paul repurposes that metaphor, just like Jesus did. He takes that metaphor and he says, it's not direction, it's burden, it's weight. And you need to let go of it. In Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Beautiful, one of the most, some of the beautiful, most beautiful words in Scripture. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I'm not asking you to climb mountains for me. I'm asking you to just sit quietly and listen to me. He wants to speak life into your life. He's not looking to put you through the ringer. He's not looking to get his pound of flesh. Jesus already bore that that weight. And now he can look through glasses and see his Jesus glasses and look at us miserable wretches apart from Jesus. But through that lens of Jesus, he sees us just as he sees his son. Complete and perfect. 
That's the kind of story that should get out of these four walls. And it should be transforming communities. And we see people still tied up with the bondage of legalism, of the old covenant. Still trying to even straddle both of them. And say, yeah, God, I, I get that what you're, what you're offering me is really nice. It sounds good, but I, I just like my work ethic. I, let me just work this thing out. He's like, you can't be in both. Take my finished work. He said he was finished because he was finished. Take my yoke upon you because my burden is light. But we think we know best, don't we? Just like, just like Abraham and Sarah, we think we know best. So we make our plans. We have our sticky notes for our sticky notes. I've got a whole, I'm not kidding. I, I have a whole chain of them and I stick the next one to the bottom of the last one. And I cross them out as I go. It's like you have a computer right there and you know, all this, all this technology and I still have sticky notes. I'm making plans and I'm keeping track and I'm keeping order. And I want, I want to be careful that making plans is not wrong. I'm not saying that's a sin to make plans. I think it's a good stewardship of your time to have plans. Just don't write them in ink. Write them in pencil. Because God may take that pencil out of your hand and flip it upside down and say, let me just rub some of that out. I don't like that part. And if he doesn't like that part, guess what? You're not going to like that part. You think you do, but you're not going to. The plans themselves are not bad. Proverbs 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. How many people have been impoverished because they've made a series of bad choices? They, they're, they're, they are serial bad choice makers. God's grace is no less sufficient for them as it was for you making one less bad choice. Alright, so let's not look down our nose at somebody else and say, well... Seven of them. I only made three. So, I mean, you get it, right? It might as well be infinity bad choices you made. Because that's the same state we were all in. The plans are okay. Just make sure you write them in pencil. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Heart, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Tie that... To that, the idea in Psalms 37, verse 23, the steps of a good man or woman, they're ordered by the Lord. So make your plans, make them in pencil, let God have the final word on what your plans are, and let him order your steps, let him take care of things. If if Abraham and Sarah had just obeyed and just trusted God, maybe they wouldn't be feuding with their stepbrother for the next several thousand years. It's no mistake that they're still fighting today. Last week we talked about divine detours and not to despise the divine detours that God has put you on. We again walk by faith and not by sight. So sometimes we don't see the whole picture. Actually, all the time we don't see the whole picture. Uh, we get we see just a small fragment of it. And we think we know some stuff because we see a small fragment, and that's more dangerous than not seeing anything. If you don't see anything, you know you have to rely on somebody. You ever played one of those games where you were blindfolded and you had a partner telling you where to step? And if you actually listen to your partner and they're not jacking around with you then you'll actually get where you're going. It's like a guide dog. But if you are if you are not listening, and you got your own mind made up, even though you're blindfolded and can't see a thing, you're going to misstep. You're going to miss cue. You're going to get off course. God's plans are better than yours. God's plans are better than mine. 
His thoughts are not our thoughts, Isaiah 55, and his ways are not our ways. God is, here's a word for you, a, a Christian theology word for you, God is transcendent. He is bigger than, he is farther than, he is stronger than, he is wiser than, he is better than. He transcends this time, space, and matter continuum that we live in. We're stuck in it. We're stuck in this continuum of time, space, and matter. God made that continuum. He's not bound by any of it. So God is transcendent, but not, and hear me on this please, He's transcendent, but not at the expense of His imminence. He is still near to us. And near to anybody that's searching after Him, seeking after Him. If you're here this morning, first of all, it's not by accident. If you wandered here this morning and you've been searching, you've been looking, hoping to find something God has promised in His Word, I'm not far off for anyone that's looking for me. Seek me and you will find me. God is both transcendent, He's also imminent, He's near. But we stick stubbornly to our plans, don't we? We a stubborn commitment to our own plans. And they say the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. I've ridden that ride before, <laughs> like a merry-go-round. And then we wonder, when we keep getting the same results, we wonder why the universe, or God, if we want to call it God, we wonder why it's against us, he's against us. And then you hide behind this little bit of hallmark theology. Well, everything happens for a reason. Well, sometimes the reason is you're dumb and make bad choices. <laughs> there, I said it. <laughs> Didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> sometimes the reason is, there is a reason, sometimes the reason is we're dumb and make bad choices. And who's waiting for us at the end of that bad choice again? And again. And again. Every single time. Never gets tired of us coming back home. Never. Calling all the prodigals to come back home. You've gotten into substance abuse, come back home. You've gotten into cheating on your spouse, come back home. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences for your action, but there's always forgiveness waiting. Abraham and Sarah's plan started off with fornication. I mean, not a great start. Not a great first step, Sarah, or Abraham. He's not innocent here. And I get that the culture is different. History says something different about that culture. I get all that. But they knew this was not the method that God was going to give them an error. But they did it anyway. And let's not get caught up in the soap opera drama of Abraham and the, and the handmaiden. That is sin, but... It pales in comparison to the sin of disbelief. They didn't believe God at his word. They didn't believe what God said. This leads to strife in the family, strife in the home and beyond. Now, how many of us have had relationships be strained and difficult, not because of something somebody else did to us, but because of our own inner turmoil. And we just can't seem to not be nasty to everyone around us. At home and beyond, at work, at our workplace, And that cycle leads, leads to an inadequacy in self. I can't help but think that Sarah looked at, at Hagar after she conceived and after her belly is growing and think, man, I feel so inadequate. 
and dirty and, and wrong. And that leads to jealousy and animosity. When, when we're caught in sin, we look at other people and we actually get mad at them for the thing that we're guilty of. How many times, I've, I've, I've talked to so many couples that uh, are where one has cheated, but it's the other one that's constantly suspecting the one who didn't. Because you carry that around, you're like, you know what a scumbag you've been, so you, you, you assume that everyone else is the same way. Eventually, their plan would lead to them excommunicating a, a woman, a young woman and her child. Get out. Just take a minute to just let that marinate in your mind. That you, you did something wrong, so the best solution is to send them off into the wilderness. Make your, make your problem go away. Only it didn't. But how about your plans? We could all find application in our own lives. Of ways in which we didn't trust the promises of God. We didn't trust the divine promise when God said, I'm going to fix this. And he said, yeah, but I got one, I got a quicker fix. And I'm not really patient. I'm not waiting. I got my own idea of how that should go down. I, I'm ashamed to admit to you that I have in my life, I have prayed for things. At the moment, I didn't care what God wanted. I prayed for him to give me what I wanted despite his will. I don't recommend that. And in some ways in my life, I'm still paying the price. Not spiritually, Jesus paid for that. But I'm still paying the consequences of that decision. To pursue that what I wanted, my plan A, no matter what God wanted for me. And so how do things usually turn out? Well, eventually we end up uttering a desperate Jesus take the wheel kind of thing. We summon our inner Carrie Underwood. That was her, right? Carrie Underwood. And we say, Jesus, take the wheel. He, he's, he's like, I, want, I wanted you to say that to me first. <clears throat> Believe God for his divine promise and be patient enough to allow it to play out in your life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to get ready for uh, communion here in a moment. I'm going to ask if, uh, if Bill and uh, Mark um, can come up. Trust his plan for your lives. It might not happen tomorrow. It might not happen next week, next month, even next year. Trust his plan for your life. Be faithful to what he said to you. He, I guarantee, is going to be faithful to you. As we switch uh, modes here to celebrate communion. As the song that we sang today said, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. So can we take a minute to just think about that and just appreciate that. Cast our minds to Calvary and think about that. To have a regular time of remembrance. Remember that his ways are always higher than our ways. And that his way included a plan to find us where we were. Left the 99 to come find the one wandering broken soul. And to love us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. Brennan Manning, himself battling alcoholism all throughout his ministry, would, would preach to thousands and would see dozens and dozens of people come to Christ and go to his hotel room and get so drunk, he wouldn't remember what happened. But at the end of the day, 
he would say, all is grace. God still used him. He said this, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus and I have done nothing to earn it or to deserve it. He provides for us a way to come back home to restore fellowship with our Creator. And we remember that plan, we remember that story every time we come and take part in these elements. And so I'm going to ask, uh, I don't know if a keyboard or a guitarist, we just play some music for us. As we get ready to take these elements, we'll just have the, the first row come up um, and uh, and pass by. And you can just, uh, the second, next rows just follow in sequence. Um, and then when we've gathered all the elements, what we do ask is this is a, this is a, a thing that believers do. All right, so if you're a, a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ, this is an open forum for you to be a part of this, whether you're a member here at Ignite or not. Um, we just ask that you maintain that, uh, uh, that, that you're a believer in Jesus. And I'm going to be reading a couple passages uh, here in a moment once everyone's gotten all the, the elements and, and ready to, to partake. But at this time, why don't we go ahead and uh, have the worship team play a little bit, uh, and we'll start the distribution.